Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Pastor Jonathan Mason, and I want to welcome you back to another edition of the Pastor's Office. Uh, it's always good to have you here with us, and, and we just, as always, never take your support, never take your listening ears for granted. I, I got to ask you a question before we get started. What happened to the summer? No, seriously, what what happened to the summer? Uh, I, I usually can make it to the end of October, maybe early November in shorts. Uh, but I had to go and uh, pull out the jeans and the sweatpants and the sweat tops uh, this week because we were in the 50s and the 60s uh, several days uh, of the week. Uh, uh, listen, listen, listen. I, I, I love the brisk period of the year. I'm not going to tell you a lie. But uh, I could have used a, a few more days in the in the shorts and the tank tops and and everything else. But you know what? At the end of the day, I thank God for another day. I thank God for another opportunity to be a part of his creation. And most importantly, I thank God for another chance. Uh, Notice I didn't say a second chance. I hear people all the time talking about a second chance. Uh, But if we're really going to be honest with each other, uh, all of us are living on far more than a second chance. Uh, and and so we need to always be thankful to God uh, for showing us grace and showing us mercy. Because if there were a limit to chances, I am certain that we all would have exceeded it by now. Speaking of another chance, uh, we've got a great show today uh, that's focusing on another chance, focused on giving people another chance. Uh, And I want to welcome our first guest into the studio today. They work with the Northeast Treatment Centers, uh, and the Northeast Treatment Centers are are focused on taking care of our young people, uh, giving them an opportunity uh, after they've been convicted of crimes to really rehabilitate themselves uh, and make the most of the life that God has given them. So we want to talk today to Ray Styles and Marion Wilson of the Northeast Treatment Centers. Gentlemen, welcome into the pastor's office for the very first time. How are you on this wonderful Sunday afternoon? Wonderful, great, great. Thank you for thank having us. Good, good, good. Listen, one of the themes, and we were kind of chopping it up before we started today, but one of the themes that I love to deal with on this show uh, is another chance, giving people an opportunity to still get a seat at the table of success, even though they may have stumbled and fallen, uh, 
And and if we're going to be honest with each other, all of us have stumbled and fallen somewhere along our lives. Uh, And if not for another chance, where would we be? So when I heard about the Northeast Treatment Centers, I wanted to get you guys on the show so we could really talk about the impact that you're making uh, on the lives of young people in our community. So for those of our listeners who don't know, Marion, why don't you start out by just giving us a little background on the Northeast Treatment Centers? For sure. So, North, thank you for having us once again. And uh, briefly, Northeast Treatment Centers, we are a very diverse organization. We do everything from drug and alcohol we have drop-in centers for people who need methadone treatment. We deal with families who are in crisis who are in the social services uh, side of things. Uh, we're all about reunifying families. And then we have our juvenile justice services, which also includes drug and alcohol services for youth and adults, as well as our ERC, CEIC, and CBDS programs, which are, when you talk about a second chance, those are the opportunities for youth who have had some troubled times and not necessarily needing to be just dished out because they made a mistake, right? This is the opportunity that we are blessed to be able to offer to these youth from the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Ray Styles is actually, he's a, one of the best people in our organization running our ERC program, um, which has been in existence since 2013. And the ERC stands for Evening Reporting Center. And the idea of that at that time was saying, hey, we recognize and understand that the highest level of crime for youth happens at 3 p.m. till 9 p.m., Monday through Fridays and Sundays, every day of the week. And what we have created with the ERC in the city of Philadelphia is a, a safe haven, that we would like to call it, a place where kids can come, gain exposure, and gain safety. Uh, have some great staff working with them. This is not your run-of-the-mill just a uh, place where people come sit around and on their cell phones. No, we are actually giving grade A programming on a daily basis through partnerships and our, our highly trained staff, which I know Ray will t- definitely talk about more of that on our, our day-to-day basis working with these young men. You know, one of the things that I saw Uh, when I was reading up on the treatment centers, is that some of these young people that you end up working with, they're they're really on their last strike when it comes to the criminal justice system. Uh, And you're there to help kind of guide them away from where they were to a path where they can actually be productive in society. Ray, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so like Mr. Marion said, we're we're all about reunited families and helping these young men get reacquainted into the community in a positive manner. Um, uh, myself, I've been doing this since 2003 and I've had the opportunity and the blessing to work with Mr. Marion Wilson over the years, dealing with the young, young men and young women with the post ERC. Um, I was asked to come board in January to change the culture of the program. And, you know, through my experience, I started investigating, why these young men are here and where did they stumble and how can we change? So by being in conjunction and building a rapport with probation and the court system, I started investigating, you know, arrests and, and why they were arrested and summary offenses and things of that nature. And some of our young men are just victims of, of, of a product of their environment. Some are victims of their environment and they just had a rough go. 
So what we started to do was implement programming. Mr. Mayor Wilson has been great at that. He's had us with the uh, relationship with the McLean Foundation, who has assisted with a lot of programming. We started to look at the education role, how we can get these young men to get GEDs, the high school diplomas, as well as other skills, such as soft skills, like the Safe Serve program. We have a barber coming in to teach uh, barbering. Uh, we have a connection with the PAC program, who's offering uh, different grants to go send the kids to do different do different uh, skills, such as welding, um, plumbing, electric work, uh, uh, internship with the PGW, as well as the water department, and being offered jobs when they graduate, actual career jobs. Um, so when they come to the post ERC, we try to hone that in, and like Mr. Barron said, not make it a place of just babysitting, but actually giving these young men a chance to learn something while they're here. You know, give them some type of of, of wraparound, in-house wraparound service where we talk about different things. We offer the uh, the cognitive behavioral programs and groups where they can also talk about things at home, things that they need they need help with, whether it's different services, family therapy, um, inpatient therapy, outpatient therapy, and things of that nature, to make sure that they try not to make the same mistakes when they go back into the community. You're listening to Philly's Favorite 100.7 FM. We are in the pastor's office talking to Ray Styles and Marion Wilson from the Northeast Treatment Centers. Uh, the treatment centers offer an array of services to the community. But today, we're really talking about the impact, the impact uh, that these program that the program has on young people. Uh, I want to I want to really focus in real quick on the evening reporting centers. What is the value of the evening reporting centers, Marion? In, in layman's terms, we're not going to go ahead and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because we're born into poverty doesn't mean that we should be stricken to a life of no elevation. And knowing the fact that some of the youth that live in the city of Philadelphia were the largest, poorest, big city in America, the largest, poorest city in America. And that comes with uh, everything that when you think of poor city, it comes with everything that it states, right? So these guys are being raised in environments where literacy rates are extremely low. Uh, so many people have counted them out. However, this ERC program has given an opportunity for youth to be exposed, as Ray spoke about, to a genre of different aspects of business and life and workshops and really just digging in on their mental and cognitive behavior, letting them know that you should think before you react. And then you're dealing with the staff who uh, I will call it, and once again, I can't uh, speak enough about them because a program is based off of the people who are working it. And these folks who are at the ERC program at Northeast Treatment Centers really care. Um, I, I see it firsthand. And, you know, these guys and girls aren't the people who necessarily would be considered to be the best people to work here. Yes, they have had issues in their lives, too. But that makes them relatable. And I think you have to have people who are relatable to work with the youth that we're serving. And once they are exposed from a relatable source, a trusted resource, uh, going into these different barbering programs and working with the McLean Foundation, who is bringing an array of different business opportunities, doing business workshops and classes, doing the haircuts, taking them to different dinners on a regular basis. Some of these guys never wore a suit before, but with the McLean Foundation and Northeast Treatment Centers, they take them to fine dining, teach them about what fork they should eat with, 
teach them about how you should sit your napkin on your lap. These are the things that some young men in our city would never experience. They're just trying to figure out where they're going to get their next cheesesteak and fries. Wow. And then on top of that, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's how serious it is about yeah. being exposed and this opportunity that they have here. So I, I, I'm definitely passionate about it because since 2013 and, and me being involved uh, with the ERC, I've had phone calls from guys who are now in college. Well, that's what I want to talk about real quick, and I want both of you to chime in on this. You know, I, I have a an, a program for at-risk youth, but more importantly than the program that I have for at-risk youth, I've been pastoring uh, for the last almost nine years, and I've had the opportunity to watch a lot of our young people grow up. I've had the opportunity to see young people who may have started out on the wrong track get turned around and end up going to college and end up in productive jobs and in productive careers. Everybody that works with the youth has a success story that they want to share. Uh, I want to go to both of you. Both of you, share one of your great success stories with us. Marin, why don't you start? All right, so one day I'm at work, or I believe I was actually out of work at that time. I was, like, off. It was a weekend. And I received a phone call from a grandfather of one of these young men that we were working with. And he calls my phone. I really don't even know how he got my number. But he said, is this Mr. Marion Wilson? I said, yes, it is. He said, well, this is, I'll just say his first name. He said, this is Sean's grandfather. So immediately I'm thinking to myself that something has happened to Sean. I'm thinking, how else has granddad, why is he calling me? And I'm thinking to myself, what has happened to Sean? And he says to me, he said, I said, is everything okay with him? He said, Mr. Marion, I don't know what you did to those guys, but I'm dropping Sean off at college. <laughs> he said, and I just want to let you know, thank you all for whatever you told him or did down there at that ERC program because we never – thought he would be going to college to me that was that you know that one who regardless of how many people we affect because we don't know the outcome of it that's right but when i heard that phone call i said i knew we were doing something right amen 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 ray talk to us man <laughs> um i've 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 had the fortune of having a few success stories but um one one story it was it was it was pretty it caught me off guard I had just started at the ERC, and um, it was back in January. And I, I was I was in the the, the uh, I think it was Target. I believe it was Target. I'm always in Target. I was in the Target, and I was speaking to somebody about the program. And I was saying, "Hey, man, you know, I get something for my kids. You know, some thinking some things, some trips and stuff." And the young man walked by, and I didn't know him from anything. And he said, "Hey," he said, "He said you talking about." They're on Second Street. And I say, yeah, you familiar? He say, yeah, I was a student there, and he's now a mechanic, and he's doing very, very, very well. And he was telling me about all the things he did, riding stolen cars and stuff. And this was at the time when Mr. Marion was more hands on with the boys instead of just directing, and overseeing. And I thought, like, wow, like, like you know, this is a kid who had gun charges, robbery, you know violent arrest and now he's a mechanic and working on owning his own shop and i thought that was really amazing because our program is only six months so to to have that type of impact and change on someone in six months when you get them they're between 14 and 18 so you have to erase 13 12 13 years of other ways of teaching 
to get them to conform and get on the right path, I think is very amazing. It's a testament to the staff that, that contributed to that young man's success. Now, was there anything, and, and I'm always interested in finding this out, was there anything in either of your past uh, that drove you to have this type of passion for our young people? Uh, because because we know that in many times in life, you know, our, what we're doing today has really been shaped by past experiences. Ray? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm originally from North Philadelphia, Strawberry Mansion area. Um, 31st in Montgomery. And um, I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood. Same type of situations. Um, not too much family. My mother wasn't in my life. My father struggled with addiction for years. He was around, but he struggled. So, you know, my grandmother was more present, but she was older. Faced with a lot of different things in the neighborhood. Gangs, drugs, all that kind of stuff. But I was fortunate to have older men especially African-American men in my neighborhood, a couple of relatives that kept me on the right path and would talk to me, spend time with me, tell me I could do better, keep me on the right path. So when I became uh, employed in social services, I thought that this was the way I could give back. I mean, put myself through school, graduating from Temple University, being able to, you know, have my hand in football, trying out for the NFL and different things I was successful with. This was my way of spreading that same message that I got as a young man. And I always tell the kids, you are not what they put on paper. Always remember that. Your story is not over. So when I speak to these young men and women, that's, that's, that's my message every day. Show them different. Show them this is not true. Show them you can overcome these circumstances. You need help. We're here for you. But show them what you can do. Show them a different way. And that's what I was able to do. So I'm confident that with a little bit of help and a little bit of coaching, they can do the same thing. And Marion, just uh, if you could give your your background a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, anytime I talk about the work I do, I tell people this is not this is not a career path. This is not a job. This is a calling. I, I truly believe that God brought us here for a purpose. I started off. Uh, I'm from Wayne Avenue, Happy Hollow. Raised in North Philly at the same time. I'm a graduate of Simon Gratz, Reynolds, Bache Martin. Uh, so I, I went to school in North Philadelphia my entire life. Uh, and that goes back to that relatability piece when we talk to the young men. Um, I graduated from Cheney University. And my first job after graduating from Cheney was at Harvard Business School. Uh, after leaving Harvard Business School as an employee, I became uh, a young executive at Lowe's Hotels. Uh, the PSFS building downtown. I did that for three and a half years. I wound up quitting and went into the music industry, opening up for acts like Wale and Snoop Dogg. Coming off of the road, once my music career was complete, I got into the social service industry. Um, I was called to the social service industry because I thought I would probably go back into private, uh, the private side of corporation, but that did not occur. And then uh, I started at the bottom and just moved to the top. And where I sit at today, I'm truly blessed because I have the opportunity to meet a lot of folks from a lot of different walks of life. And whatever opportunities that they may have, I find different ways to integrate them into the organization of Northeast Treatment Centers. Uh, NET allows me to find different organizations and partnerships, and they, they believe in my ideas and uh, the, the relationships that we build with great community partners. 
to bring back into the organization, such as the McLean Foundation, and allow them to do their God's work within our organization. I won't say that this is the silver bullet to fix every kid. What I will say is this. If you are looking for an exit, if you are looking for a way out, maybe you just needed the opportunity and just so happenstance that you did a crime and the judge said we're going to give you six months in the ERC program, if you take it serious, you can walk out of here with more than you came with. You don't just have to walk into the ERC uh, with, with, a, with a criminal number. You don't have to just walk into the ERC like Brother Ray said, just with your name on paper saying, you know, a next uh, felon. Because if you complete the ERC successfully, your juvenile record gets wiped clean. And if you can get your juvenile record wiped clean upon your completion of the program, you can walk away with a career path. So this is the opportunity that is forfeited through the ERC program, which makes me just, uh, like I said, I could talk about me and it sounds good, but I, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I've recognized a long time ago, it's not about me. It's about who we affect, how we affect, and what they're going to do next. Because we need these young men and women who come to the program to be the next voices of helping the youth who are behind us. You're listening to Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM, and just having a great conversation with Ray and Marion about the Northeast Treatment Centers. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing uh, and for the impact that you've had on the lives of young people. Uh, you know, I, I often tell the story uh, that Mother Teresa uh, went to India one time and there were thousands upon thousands of starving children uh, in front of her. And somebody said to her, Mother Teresa, how are you going to help all of these children? And, and she pointed at one child and she said, I'm going to start with that one right there. And I think if all of us could have that mentality, we just got to start with one then we can truly be a blessing uh, to the lives of our young people. we got to pay it back. we got to give it back. So, Ben, thank you. Before you leave, just tell our listeners how they can find out more information about the treatment centers, please. Yeah, if you want to learn more about Northeast Treatment Centers, you can definitely go online and look up northeasttreatmentcenters.org. Um, we are hiring. We're looking for some more of those credible messengers. So if you're looking for a career path to work with youth in our communities, Please go in there and look at careers at northeasttreatmentcenters.org. Uh, if you want to learn more about us, you can go there as well and find more uh, information about NET as well. Um, but wherever you go, just know it's a Ray Styles or Marion Wilson welcoming, waiting to welcome you along your way. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us in the pastor's office, and we look forward to talking to you again real, real soon. Be blessed. Thank you. And we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Philly's favorite listeners, I want to welcome you back into the pastor's office. We want to thank Ray Styles and Marion Wilson of the Northeast Treatment Centers for giving us a really good picture uh, into what the Northeast Treatment Centers do for our young people uh, and the positive impact that they have on our communities. But uh, I want to kind of take a turn now. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of Area 51? Now, I've heard of Area 51, and, you know, in almost every telling of Area 51, uh, this is where, you know, the potentially there are aliens, maybe a spaceship landed from a, a, another planet. You know, that, that's the kind of thing we heard when we were children 
growing up about Area 51. Now, people of this current generation probably have never heard of Area 51. Uh, but in the 70s and 80s, I heard of Area 51 all the time. Two gentlemen that we're going to speak to today. One is chairman uh, of the Invisible Enemy and an Air Force veteran. And the other served in the 4450th Tactical Group of the United States Air Force and is also a former Harlem Globetrotter. we got to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but I want to welcome Dave Crete and Pomp Braswell II into the pastor's office. Watch this. They served at Area 51. And right now they're dealing with health issues as a result of their service at Area 51. And I want you to understand what's going on with them at this moment. Uh, Dave, Pomp, and I hope I can call you by your first names. Welcome into the pastor's office. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thank Reverend. You very much. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. So, so, so let's first dispel the myths. What really goes on at Area 51? So I'll break it down a little bit for you, and that is first, what everybody refers to as Area 51, there's really two bases out there that are kind of sister bases. And it is where the Air Force developed its next-generation weapon. And I have never seen a UFO as one of those weapons. <laughs> so, so basically... But that is always... That, that's where everybody goes first. Right. It's just... It's where... You know, all the new cool toys get get built, and it's and it's really something. It, it's not to take away from it. It really is something. So, so clearly, when people are seeing things flying uh, over airspace that they've never seen before, they'll take it as it being a UFO. Correct. Okay. All right. Now I understand something they haven't seen in their lifetime or can even imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. I understand. So, so, so both of you were stationed at, give us a little context. Both of you were stationed at Area 51. Uh, give us the years you were there. I was at the Tonopah Test Range, part of the range, and I was there from 1983 to 1987. Okay. And Pomp? I was there from 1987 through 1990. Okay. All right. So Dave and I actually kind of know, knew each other when we got when we were on this journey. We didn't even realize we knew each other because we both played on the football team. Okay. Dave was the center and I was the halfback. And how we vetted each other, because, you know, there's a lot of stolen valor out there in the world. So we had to vet each other to see that, it, that we even knew about it. So we talked about the ECP, the procedures of the ECP. And then when he told me he played football, I asked him the, the name of our quarterback. I told him the name of our quarterback, and that's when he realized, how else would you know that person's name? Okay. All if, right. you, if you weren't there together. Understood. Understood. So, so while serving uh, at Area 51, you say that that's where all the new gadgets are tested. Um Talk to us about the exposure to radiation. How do you know that you were exposed to radiation at Area 51? Because the government said so. And I mean that literally. That, uh, like, the, the part of the range where I was at Tonopah, 
1975, there was an environmental assessment conducted by the federal government. In that assessment, it said that exactly where we were was contaminated with plutonium. In fact, both the soil and the groundwater were contaminated. And the plutonium that they used, that they put in the, in the bombs, has a half-life of over 24,000 years. In other words, it's around forever. We'll, there will be far more important things that happen between now and then than, you know, it, it's just... It, it's just crazy how much time, how long this stuff lasts. And so we were there. Well, Dave, Dave, don't forget, give or take 30 years. Yeah, that's right. Give or take 30 years. Um, wow. The, uh, the issue was where the bases are located is right next to where they did the testing. So let me be clear, because I want to make sure that our listeners are clear. So where Oppenheimer and his team tested the nuclear bomb, Area 51 is not far from that location. Where, where Oppenheimer tested the bomb was in New Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, we're in Vegas. Nevada. Yeah. And the, then what happened was then they went out to the Bikini Atoll out in the Pacific and did some testing there, and the government ruined those islands. And they needed to find another place. And the, the the real name is the Nevada Test and Training Range. Okay. On the Nevada Test and Training Range is an, a section of it called the Nevada Test Site. On the Nevada Test Site, there was approximately a 1,000 tests that was either on the Nevada Test Site or near it, all within the area that's called Nevada Test and Training Range. And when I say near where we were, where we were pompanized dormitories were when we were at work. When you went to work, you stayed there for four days, then you flew home for your weekend. The, the closest one was two miles outside our dormitory room. And there was multiple tests done around there within, within just a couple of miles of where we were. And then the fallout from the ones that took place south of us the fallout hit our range, hit where we worked as well. So those thousand tests that took place contaminated everything about where we where we were. Uh, contaminated everything. Now let me let me uh, let me get some clarity here, because I, I'm going to ask an obvious question, Pop. Why would they have active military bases? Why would the government have active military bases in a location where nuclear testing was done? I know you guys have done the research. Help me understand, please. Well, the juice is, it, it's a real simple analogy. The juice is worth the squeeze that because of what they're trying to do, they're, try, they're, they're going to be in a place where they don't have to worry about other civilians trying to poke their nose in, and they can have it in a, in a place that's very desolate. And it's hard to access. It's pretty much what the answer is. But 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 if you know that the that that the contamination is there for twenty four thousand years, give or take thirty years, you know you're exposing all of the people that are, are, are government issue or GIs. You know you're exposing them to potentially life threatening hazards. Reverend, you just hit it on the nail. You just nailed yeah. it, Reverend. You just nailed it. Let, let, 
Let me read you something, Reverend, that this is from a document dated 1975 from the federal government. I'll give you the source. I, I can send you the document. But they did a cost-benefit analysis. The cost of the operation of Tonopah test range are the use of resources, although operations carried out elsewhere would use as many. The use of the land, precluding its current possible use and for other purposes, the generation of noise and missiles, and it goes on and talks about that for a little bit. And it says the various alternative studies have great economic costs and few environmental benefits, except there is a reduction of the pace of testing of the range. The and except that and that, and except that some alternative ways of carrying out the operations on the range may be slightly less environmental. Uh, environmentally damaging. These costs and benefits imply that as long as the nation chooses to maintain an up-to-date nuclear weapons stockpile, some facilities, such as the Tonopah test range, must continue to exist. Because the the range does not, um, because the range does exist as an operation operating entity, and because it was well isolated from man and his work. From an environmental point of view, the operation of the range should be permitted to continue. The environmental costs inherent in the work are small and reasonable for the benefits received. Wow. So, Pop and Dave, um, I guess you are the collateral damage from uh, yeah. their, their, their desire to continue uh, operations there, even though they knew that there would be some little little uh what was the language you just used dave the environmental costs inherent in the work are small and reasonable for the benefits received so so you are part of the small and reasonable you and your colleagues you and the guys correct. you serve with are the small and reasonable correct wow correct wow and, and realize this reverend people don't realize for what we were doing it's called a special duty assignment we were all hand once again, we were all handpicked for that assignment. Hmm. We were the top 1%, less than 1% of the Air Force. We were the elite of the elite up there. And you all had to have a special duty. Uh, you had to have a TSSBI clearance to even get on the aircraft to fly up there. Wow. You're listening to Philly's Favor 100.7 FM, uh, and we are in the pastor's office this afternoon, uh, and we are having what is, uh, I got to tell you, it's an alarming conversation to me, uh, but we're talking to Dave Crete and Pomp Braswell II, uh, who served at Area 51. They they gave their lives to the military uh, and the, it looks like the military put their lives in jeopardy intentionally. Uh, that's what I'm getting from everything I'm hearing and from everything that I'm reading. All right, gentlemen, so we've established what happened at Area 51. Tell us what's happened as a result of you being exposed to this radiation. Uh, everybody has separate and different issues. I personally have 17 different conditions, which has been all denied for benefits with the with the VA because all our records have been data masked. So it's, it's as if we didn't exist whatsoever, even though we were up there for a substantial amount of time. 
and many, many veterans, as just as of two weeks ago, we lost our 245th member from, from various issues, cancer and other, and other issues that they, they received from being up there. Mm. Okay. And Dave, what about you? So, um, my personal issues are I have silicosis, which means scarring of the lungs. My lungs operate on about two-thirds capacity. Uh, asthma, um, I have lipomas, which are tumors. Those probably being the biggest things. There, there's other little things, but it's really it's about the tumors. It's about not, my lungs not working, having silicosis. Um, I'm currently being evaluated for skin cancer. Uh, and and our stories are, I could repeat them over and over and over. And and honestly, our stories are far less severe than some that that I've had to, some of the guys that I've talked to. I mean, it's it's horrific. Absolutely. And, and and worse, Pastor, is we signed up. We did what we did. We want the government to do the right thing as far as taking care of our guys because they refuse us. Um, the ability to get VA benefits because their their answer is when we ask, well, you were never there. If you were never there, you were never exposed. They keep us hidden because it's not a huge group. It's not Camp Lejeune where there was hundreds of thousands of people. We're a very small group compared to that. But it's what's happened to uh, our wives. Um, wives have gotten sick. Miscarriages are, were extremely common. And our children have birth defects. So wait a second. Wait a second. You have to prove that you were there because they've masked they've masked the information about your deployment. But as as military uh, officers or as 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 GIs, don't you receive like deployment papers that would prove that you were there? In order to prove that we were there, the government has to acknowledge that we were there. They don't care what we have in the way of paperwork. They have to acknowledge. And Pop brought up something that's, that's interesting and important, and that is when he talks about just us getting our medical records. I finally got my medical records from the National Archives a couple of months ago. I was in for six years. According to those records, I had a pre-enlistment physical, and I had knee surgery when I blew my knee. And that were the only two things in my medical records, not my annual dental appointments, not the annual physicals, not when you went to the emergency room for whatever, not even our exit physical. It's blank. And it's the same for everybody. It's just simply blank. Wow. Wow. So what it says would, data map. What would be the motivation, uh, Pump, for the government not to for the government not to want to take care? Uh, of officers that served their their country, I'm I'm I'm, I'm struggling with this. That that's the magic question. But the, the the thing is, is you know, secrecy goes both ways. The government wanted us to hold their secrets and what we were doing. With that on on the back end, it should be the secrecy of taking care of those troops, no matter what is on the back end. They got their. They got what they wanted on the front end. The back end, they want to ignore. Is where it really comes down to. Yeah, I so, can go ahead, Dave. I, I can add to that a little bit because Pomp's right. Then they understand there was a civilian 
bill, when I say civilian, Department of Energy bill that was passed and signed by President Clinton in 2000. There was an executive order signed by President Clinton in 2000 that took care of everyone from the Department of Energy. And the the, the uh, executive order added to our problem by blocking the DOD from being able to file a claim. And the short answer is the places that we worked at, you had to fly to work. Today, people are still flying to those same places with the same contaminations that were there when we were there. If they, if, if, I, I believe that they believe that when this becomes more public through forums like you're giving us today, they're worried about having to shut down those bases. And at the end of the day, it becomes about money. This is the military industrial complex. This is where billions of dollars have been spent and made. And they don't want that to change. And I understand that. And, and Pomp and I know firsthand the importance of, of secrecy of what we did, but it doesn't remove the responsibility of taking care of the problems that was created. Pastor, you or I, uh, my wife and I, we own our own business. If you're an employer and you intentionally put somebody to work in a place that's hazardous to their health, you don't tell them, and then after they leave, they get sick, and you don't fix it, and guys die, you're going to go to jail. It's, it's really pretty simple. So, so so they keep us hidden. Yeah. But my, what got me in the end, my oldest son was born with something called neurofibromatosis. It is directly linked to my exposure, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Our kids had nothing to do with it. Our spouses had no idea what we even did, yet my wife had three miscarriages. It's not and, and Reverend, people to write guys off. And, and Reverend, people don't realize that radi- uh, ionized radiation changes your DNA that's not rever- that you cannot reverse. Right. So once you're affected, it's a life sentence. Wow. So, and you're passing that on to your generations after that. So why aren't we hearing more about this from your brothers and sisters in arms that have been affected by this? Why, why, why is this not a bigger story? The first thing that happened, if I may, is none of us realized it was happening to one another. This was back in the 80s and 90s. There was no Facebook. There was no Internet. There were no cell phones. You didn't stay in contact like we do today. There was no email. Many people stayed in that world of secrecy, and the military is very intimidating when it comes to you don't reveal secrets. Well, Pomp and I, you haven't heard us mention what happened on our base. It's about what happened around our base before we ever got there. And... Everybody's scared to talk about it. I have people that call me today and ask, why, how, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm not, we're not giving up anything. We're very, very careful about what we say because we honor the national security of what we did. What we're saying is in spite of that, you got to do something. So everybody's been afraid. And it, it, for me, it started in our backyard at a, at a, Security police reunion when six out of eight of us were sitting there, sitting around having a beer, 
and six out of eight guys there have tumors. And I looked it up. I'm like, that's weird. We understand the nexus. We all worked in the same area. And the tumors that we have have a rate of occurrence in one in every thousand people, but six out of eight guys sit in my backyard had them. That's a heck of a coincidence. So, so, so let me, let me, let me, let me ask you about the invisible enemy. What is the invisible enemy, Dave? The invisible enemy I created this spring. We are a 501c3, and we are the advocacy group for the the men and women that served on the range, both military and DOD civilian personnel. And we are uh, working on a bill that's in draft in Congress right now that we want to have passed. And when it's passed, the, the, the purpose is to provide benefits for those that were affected by their time on the range. We're asking the government to do the right thing, and we have to take serious steps to make that happen. And we made it a 501c3 because democracy works, but democracy is not cheap. And so we're raising money in order to support this fight because we expect right now that we're going to have to travel to Washington, D.C. and bring at least 10 guys each time to testify and tell their stories to Congress on why Pop, who has 17 different conditions, needs a little help. So so let me, let me um, just, I want to put this out there so that our listeners are clear. Has the government done anything to help you since you've been diagnosed with all of these medical issues? Well, I, I, we, we get the very basic help from the VA. My current rating right now with the VA, as we, as we have this interview right now, is zero. For 33 years, I've been trying to get a rating, and I've been denied. As of July 24th, 2023, I've been denied for any type of medical, for any any type of rating to get a disability with the VA because my records have been data mapped. So with this bill, the bill is going to be a presumptive bill so that anybody who's up there will get a hundred percent rating so they can get the medical care that they need. Understood. Uh, Understood. Pastor, one of the guys on the board, he lives in Texas. Actually, two of the guys on our board live in Texas. One of them right now, he has disability from the government for other things, but they will not recognize his cancers. Right now, he's battling uh, thyroid cancer, bladder cancer, and colon cancer. And the military says, it wasn't me. And his issue is, if he passes, and his health is poor, if he passes... There will be no benefits for his wife because the military, the government, doesn't recognize his conditions as being service-related. And 100% they're service-connected. They're part of being up there. Those are very common cancers for our guys. Correct. Do you realize that uh, thyroid cancer, which is one of the things I do have, I'll admit to that one, um, that for African-Americans under the age of 80, thyroid cancer, the chance of, ca- of getting that is 0.5% unless you're exposed to ionized radiation. Hmm. Wow. Listen, 
guys, this has been uh, this has been a conversation that has provided me with a lot of information I did not know, and I'm sure that's the same for our listeners. Uh, and I want to thank you for being so transparent uh, and sharing this with us, Dave. Why don't you tell our listeners how they can get more information about the Invisible Enemy, since it is a 501c3, and I'm sure you will accept donations to help your cause. Yes, yes, we would. Our our website is theinvisibleenemy.org, theinvisibleenemy.org. My email address is dave at the dave at theinvisibleenemy.org, and if you'd like it, you can have my cell number too. Okay. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us in the pastor's office today. Uh, And, and Pop, before we go, what years were you on the Harlem Globetrotters? I was with the Globetrotters from 03 till 2008. Um, So I was, like I said, all of us up at the site were the top of the 1%. Uh, I was fortunate enough, I played golf for a living. So... I'm originally from Harlem, New York. I actually have ties with New Hope, Pennsylvania, playing baseball as, as, a, as, a, as a young child. So I do recognize that area, and I love that area very well. So, so and I don't, have when, his, I, would, I don't have his last name with me, but did you know Edgerton? That was yeah, my Edge? Yeah, yeah, that's, the university. yeah, Edge was on the team when I was there. So it was big Oliver Miller, Cedric Sabalas. Uh, Sweet Luke Dunbar, Curly yeah. Boo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Ed, yeah, Edgerton was my fraternity brother. He's a member of the greatest fraternity in the world, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity yeah. Incorporated. Uh, so, nice, nice, so nice. Uh, yeah. He, yeah, he went to U of A. Edge's first year was when I was there. So, okay. Um, Abdul Raouf was there, Mark, oh, the former known as Mark Jackson. Right. Uh, or Chris Jackson. Um, so, my first year was up there with the Globetrotters. So how it happened is that I, I went to us open qualifying. Um, and, and, and I was playing in, I played on multiple tours. I qualified for the Canadian tour, played in South America, played in Asia, played all over and in Canada. So I go to the us open qualifying and I put Harlem, New York as my home city as just one time. Cause I was like, okay, I need to recognize where I'm from. Cause a lot of people, how many golfers do you know from Harlem, New York? Well, I win the first stage of U.S. Open qualifying. That goes across the AP wire. Who's this guy from Harlem, New York? So Fox Sports out here does a story on me, and Manny Jackson, the owner of the Globetrotters, sees it, puts it out there to the media. He wants to meet me. We go out and play golf. I shoot 65. Ten days later, signs me to a five-year deal, and then I qualify for the Canadian Tour. Wow, wow. Awesome. So my job with the, with the, with the Globetrotters is that my, my my official title was ambassador of entertainment. So I would take myself; it would be myself and three other players like Curly Boo, Sweet Lou, uh, Paul Gaffney, uh, you know, Showtime. We'd go to all their charity events for the golf events. Now, the funny part is I'm six foot four, so people couldn't they didn't really know that I wasn't a basketball player, even though I had to go to training camp. I sat for two games a year. I didn't play one second. I sat on the edge of the bench, I handed out towels, and I, and I, and I, and I signed autographs. It was the greatest job in the world. <laughs> I got <laughs> you. I got it, it, you. Didn't, it, doesn't get, it doesn't get any better than that. 
But with that being said, I would take the players to these to, to these tournaments, and we would, and all of them were always four man scrambles, and we would win every one. So the people were like, "I don't get it. These guys play basketball. How do they play so well at golf?" They had a and ringer because they, I had was, a, they had a ringer I by the name the, of Pomp Braswell. I was yeah. actually the ringer. So if you ask Curly Boo, Curly Boo says he's got three or four trophies on his mantle, and he will say. I got those trophies because of Pomp Braswell. So we, I mean, we went up to Boise, Idaho, and this is one of the funniest stories in the world. So we're playing, and we get to this par three, and I hit it like a foot from the hole. And it was the closest to the hole, closest to the pin for a million dollars. So I, the, the, the whoever hit it the closest got one shot after the tournament was over for a million dollars. So I don't put my name on it, even though I hit it that close. And we look at each other, we give it to Sweet Lou. And Sweet Lou will tell you this story. It's, it's the funniest story in the world. So we shoot like 20 under par, win the tournament by like three or four shots, and these people are up in arms. So then they're like, okay, the Globe, the Harlem Globetrotters win the tournament, and the shot for a million dollars in Boise, Idaho, uh, is Sweet Lou Dunbar. So we have 360 people. So everybody comes around, and it's a floating green in, in Idaho. So it's there's... 300 people around around the, the tee box, and Sweet Lou, and they call out Sweet Lou. He comes up there. We all have our, our, our sweatsuits on. And Sweet Lou gets up over there, and he's shaking. He's absolutely shaking <laughs> like a leaf. And so I like, I, I, I tap my shoulder and say, give me a timeout. I need a 20-second timeout. So I think it's kind of a skit. And I go up to him. I said, what's wrong with you, Judge? You good? He's like, dog. This isn't my sport. This isn't my sport. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, dude, you're used to hitting half court shots in front of twenty thousand people. There's only three hundred people here. What's wrong with you? <laughs> He's like, it's not my sport. Shaking in the water, everybody started dying laughing, and I still to this day make fun of him for that one. Wow. Well, listen, guys, th- uh, thank you for joining us in the Pastors Office, and we're going to actually end the show on that note. Uh, Pomp Braswell, Dave Creed, thank you, thank you, and we're praying for you, and we're praying that you get the relief that you need, and all of your brothers and sisters in arms that are dealing with these issues, we pray uh, that the government will step in and do what they need to do to take care of you. But listen, Philly's favorite listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Pastors Office. We'll be right back here next Sunday. Sunday, same time, same place, but keep your dial locked on 100.7 all week long for the best in gospel music. We'll see you next week. Time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Mm-hmm. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you're while listening to Phyllis Favor. Son.